Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. Thank you guys for being with us at Summerfest, Echo Church Summerfest. We've got different people taking the mic this summer. And that's a good time for all of us. We've had one of our church leaders, Steve Carr. Uh, he's been doing a mini-series for us about the church and what, it, what are the pieces that make up a church. Why do we do what we do? And he's finishing us off today. Steve was part of the original founders of this church. And he spends his days helping other churches determine what does that look like to lead, to grow in their part of the country. So welcome back up a final time. We'll let you speak again, um, but a final time for now. Steve Carr. I'm going to say my biggest disappointment of the last three weeks is that you have yet to introduce me as your smoking hot husband, which if, in evangelical parlance, that's how like the preachers introduce their wives have you ever seen that? Like, my smoking hot wife, which is a thing. And every week I've been waiting. So apparently I need to go hit the gym a little bit more. I'm working on it, guys. I'm working on it. Uh, speaking of other emasculating aspects, I was at my family's house yesterday. Um, my parents live on the west side of Cincinnati. They've got a big, they've got seven acres of land. My dad built the house in which they live uh, 43 years ago. So he always has perpetual honeydew lists and he's getting older now to where my brother's like, dude, we gotta do some work out here. So got all the family out and we were working outside and um, some, you know, Kelly was with my mom and sister-in-laws and stuff on the inside, uh, just going through just junk, right? Trying to, trying to do some spring cleaning. And they come across just every picture and aspect of our childhood, every embarrassing thought or moment and stuff. Kaylin's collecting them like they're Pokemon or something like that, just trying to save up collateral for later years with which to embarrass me. Uh, we had a peculiar, you know, have a loving family. It was just always peculiar because I told you earlier, it's like my family roots were very Appalachian, it was, um, we were never really close. I make it a point to hug my father now because we, we just didn't hug growing up, right? So it was very interesting back in 2019, my father who uh, served four years in the Marine Corps and served a few tours in Vietnam uh, in combat over there during the Vietnam conflict, he was invited to do an honor flight and I'm not sure if you've seen these or you're familiar with these, but honor flights are opportunities for veterans to be able to, uh, free of charge, fly for a day out to Washington, D.C. They tour them around all of the monuments there and just try to give them honor. Uh, my father served from, I think it was 65, 66 to 69, somewhere in there. And one of the reasons that they started these flights, they've raised money and do grants for it, is because... Usually, you know, we hit the point where soldiers came home and it was like a celebration. They were honored. Um, I, it's fun. I fly a lot and I get to see that a lot now where we honor soldiers. Uh, my dad flew home on a plane. There was just nothing. So there's a whole movement to try to honor those people who have served. 
And I actually had business meetings out in D.C. that I had to schedule. So I kind of was like, look, my brother is going to accompany my dad. I'm going to find a way to schedule my afternoon meetings in D.C. so I can come and be with them a little bit. And I met them at the Marine Corps Memorial. And it was just the most interesting thing there, too, is because at the same time, there were uh, high school groups visiting at the point. And the, you know, they'd see my dad, and he, he doesn't walk as nimbly anymore, but he sometimes sit. But it was so interesting to see these young people come up and shake his hand and say, thank you for your service. And it was just one of those moments for me that I'm like, wow, it's just so cool to see him get to experience this thing. And uh, we're at this point now where we honor soldiers, especially coming into this July 4th week. And one of the reasons that we do this is because there's this idea of what freedom is, right? So this is a big celebration of freedom, and some of us celebrate by pyrotechnics and just blowing stuff up, and if you're in the city, that celebration started two weeks ago, and we'll continue well into the month of July until all those fireworks are exercised. But thinking about freedom as a concept is something we do this time, and we're in this series that I've been doing the past three weeks, just basically the accumulation of a lot of my church studies, all my academic work, what I taught in seminary, my work with churches, just to try to say, what are the nuts and bolts of what a church is? Because then who we are as a community, who Echo is, is derived from what we believe the Bible teaches and says about that. And I always get to the point where I want to talk about freedom in the church. And the reason I like to discuss freedom in the church is that for some of us, we think that those two concepts are incompatible. And actually, some of you do not think of church and think of freedom, but you think of it as constriction, right? You think of it as regulations and laws forced to put you into a box. And one of the reasons that people flee from churches is their fear that if they don't confine to certain standards that they are not part of the church. But as we read the scriptures, we understand that freedom is an elemental aspect to who Jesus is and what he provides to us. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, 1, that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Repeating for emphasis. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So if you are in this space today or watching online and you are in a place in life where you're like, I don't think of Christianity, I don't think of that in terms of being free from something then you have either misconstrued or been taught it improperly. And this is one of the reasons that I make sure that when we talk about the church, you need to understand that the church is actually a vehicle for your freedom in life and your participation in it should be joyous because it releases you from confines. It does not place further regulations upon you. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and I begin this, and, and by the way, a couple things on this. This is the third part in the series, so you're ju- if you're jumping into it, this stuff's online, and I know what you want to do is watch more videos of me online, but it's there. And the one thing, I was talking to Kelly yesterday, because I appreciate some of you have had good encouraging words about this, is this actually, I wrote a book about this, and it sounds more important than it is, because anybody can write a book nowadays, and actually I was like, look, I made it short. I'm not even published it. It's an ebook, and I think what we're going to do, because I go into deep, deeper conversations as this, we might just make it, you know, like a password thing on the website. I don't like it, you know, 
I just, you can do and disseminate as you wish. And again, it's a short PDF because I figured out, you know, guys, I like a lot of words, but I swear, and Kelly's looked at it, it's really only like 60 pages. It's not even legit pages. They're like short pages. But basically, I want it to be a point for us to be introduced to these concepts of what is the church. So I did not write it for Echo, per se. I wrote it for church leaders anywhere, but it's in a book. We'll get there. I want to talk about freedom. When I talk about this, a concept with which you might be unfamiliar, and that's where I want to start right now, the idea of what do you need to believe to be part of a church. And I would say those are categorized into two different things. There are essential beliefs, and then there are non-essential beliefs. Now, that might seem, too, to be kind of paradoxical, right? Because you're like, wait, we have to believe things, and why are you saying that some things are essential and some things are not essential? But the reality is, is that we read in Scripture, and for thousands of years, generationally, people in the church have had to figure out what the most important things are. That's one of the beauties of the church, because without thinking of the concept of freedom underneath the guise of essentials and non-essentials, then we get caught into all different types of arguments Perhaps at previous churches or you know of churches who make political positions something that is totally equated with your belief in Jesus and that has put you off from scripture. One of the problems is sometimes church leaders cannot themselves distinguish between the idea of essentials, things that are foundational to what we have to believe and those things to which disagreement is okay. So if you're coming into Echo and you're newer here, even if you've been here for a long time, you've figured this out, but it's something that bears repeating, is that we all don't have to share the same beliefs about everything. And in fact, that's something that makes the diversity of the body of Christ something beautiful. We have different backgrounds, different situations, different journeys in our faith, and that is something that's key. But what we want to do is unite around essentials. Even the Jewish rabbis taught this. They had a thing called midrash. I was always just, I thought it was the most beautiful thing, is that the rabbis in Judaism would argue ad nauseum. And actually, we have thousands and thousands of pages of ancient writings where rabbis would argue about certain things. But when they entered into midrash, they always entered into an understanding that said, look, here's our base belief, now let's go to arguing. And I think that's something that the church can, not the arguing part of it, but the idea that we can unify, and then if there's things with which we disagree with each other, it's okay. And I threw this up last week on the screen, but just to reiterate, it's just us trying to see, like, how does this develop? Is it, you know, is the essentials just what Steve declares it to be, and then we have to do this? No, it is based upon something that is rich and deep within our faith journey that starts with the Bible itself, And in the Bible, we know that there were apostles that Jesus called to lead the church. And in the book of Acts, we see the Acts of the Apostles. And we see their teachings, and that lingered on for years. So what's very interesting is we have actually writing still from people who learned and sat under the apostles, first and second generation behind them, that were able to say, hey, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what I learned from the apostles themselves. And we use part of that, their teachings and church history, for us to be able to derive this is what we believe today. And then we can look around and saying, who are the people to hold to essentials? How do we share commonality with them? And then we get down to this localized level, the church local, what you and I are in a smaller group here in Walnut Hills in Cincinnati, Ohio, United States. How does our community coalesce our essential beliefs? And that is usually defined by church leaders. We'll talk about this later, elders. And it gets down to us individually. I don't want you, even though this is, 
you know, you, just listing lists and bullet point things. It's not that this is fully hierarchical. Yes, we sit under the Bible, but what we do is we take all of this, and this is baked into how we come to an understanding of what is essential and what is not essential. So there's a list of this. We actually have a statement of faith on the website, and I've told Kelly, we really locked that in 18 years ago and ran with it, and you know, words change over 18 years. I told her, and I was like, look, we've got to go back and look at our like, statement of faith because it's solid, but there's probably things now that we would switch words. That's the thing. Language changes. Words are mutable. They transform, and just because we wrote it 18 years ago doesn't mean it's like, hey, let's lock that in because Steve at 2930 knew everything about everything. But what we're trying to say is, what does it look like for us? I just want to give a few examples for us today to say, what are some of the essentials that I would say, and our church would say, it is very foundational what we believe. And those three would be uh, virgin birth, and this is not that virgins give birth all the time, but that Jesus was born of Mary, born of a virgin because his birth was supernatural. His was unlike any other birth in the history of humanity, so that Jesus and truly, he exists as the son of God. That's something that we believe. We don't believe it's a metaphor, but we believe an actual human being slash fully God deity named Jesus was born about 2,000 years ago and lived a life. He was God. We believe in his deity, and we believe that he actually died. And by the way, when I was in seminary, it started actually, not my seminary, but the belief started 2,000 years ago, and even portrayed for a long time that people were like, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. He kind of, he was like, you know, you look at Monty Python. He was mostly dead, and then he just woke up, and it's like, no, we believe the word of God that teaches that Jesus literally died and that he literally rose from the dead. And this is the symbol to which we as believers attach everything about that. The death to life motif. The, abs- the belief that there is something after this. That there's life after death. And that is the hope of glory to which the entire Bible testifies. So I'm going to say like these ideas and some more are things to which we cling to and we would say, look, We want you, if you come to the church, to believe these things. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't believe them, you're not welcome. But for us to say, hey, if we're going to have deep theological conversations about other things, let's hold to these things because this to us is foundational. That is an exclusive argument, right? Because by me saying this, by me saying that I believe that Jesus was God, that he lived and died, was buried and rose again, even by that, it's a statement of exclusivity. It's not a statement of superiority, that says that Christianity is better than all other religions. But it's more a statement of exclusivity to say, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And because of that, we structure everything under this, right? We, we struggle with that, usually because we believe it's superior. It's just this is the community in which we exist. This is how we see it working out, okay? Now, non-essential issues. This is even more fun because like what's on a list of this? And I thought about this because I wanted to believe like mildly offensive but not fully offensive and you know I could get really down into this weeds and yes no notes I might get a little more Kelly. And by the way I talked about that the other night too because I look over here now and I see how Pastor Kelly just looks when I say certain things because I get looks and now I'm like oh I can't say that? Okay. But what's interesting is that when I was the lead pastor, she still gave me those looks. 
I just didn't feel like I had to submit to those looks. I'm just like, nap, I'm going through it. Now if I get a look, I'm like, I have to subscribe to her view of what I should or should not say. So I'm trying, hun. We'll do it. And uh, I won't sleep on the couch tonight. Potential non-essentials. And actually, I'll full circle this, if you will. That's my, that's my vibe. So stick with me, lady. Okay. Alcohol. I've, I was actually in a church previously to where we, you know, we had this point and was like, hey, by the way, we as church leaders, we're going to have to sign a thing that we won't drink or chew or go with girls to do. They were like, no alcohol for ministers on staff. And I just was like, okay, so you're saying like, does that, and I just was like, what's the reasoning behind it? Well, people could see that and that could be scandalous. I was like, okay, so if I'm on vacation, can I have a margarita? And I was like, what? I was like, well, if the reason we're saying that is that this isn't a biblical issue, but this is how the church lives, I can't drink in public, but can I drink in private? Because are you telling me that, you know, drinking is bad in every situation? And really, there was no good answer because I was like, there's an easy biblical confine to say, you know, people, like, like if this is new for you, good. And if you're just like, look, you should see my liquor cabinet at home, you're like, I don't even understand this. But there was a movement coming out of some really serious things that happened in the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s that said alcohol was of the devil. And it was kind of right because alcohol was the catalyst for men who drank too much and abused their wives. And they're like, how do we solve this? Let's just get rid of alcohol altogether. But unfortunately saw that the elimination, the prohibition of alcohol didn't solve all problems. That's a political issue, if you will, but from a biblical issue, it's not like, I'm telling you guys, I've read entire papers from people who've said, you know, Jesus really didn't drink alcohol. It was really grape juice. And as long as he drank it early, it didn't ferment, and that was good. I'm just telling you that Welch's was actually a puritanical, like just Wikipedia, the Welch family and the development of grape juice. It's just the idea of it was like an invention of prohibition because we like, we can't have wine because wine is evil. So I'm just telling you from a construct, to say that people in the Bible didn't drink is just, it's, it's just a ludicrous idea. But I was at a point to where I got in actual arguments on staff because it's like, I can't believe you would drink. And I was like, I can't, you know, like, I get if you're asking me to do that as a part of this, but to, to unite it with morality, that's not something there. Now, when it comes to alcohol, by the way, We've had people in this church, and I've walked along them who are recovering alcoholics who are going through it, who abstain, and we want to encourage that, right? But to go to the opposite extent and to say you have to do it because it's a legalistic aspect. If you don't believe this, you are outside of the confines of Christianity. Ludicrous, right? It's funny, I'm teaching this right now, and some of you are like, why is he even talking about this? I'm telling you, I have this concept, and I still have people wanting to argue with me. When I was in seminary, like somebody would go in depth, and I was like, I just don't have, I don't have the time. Worship preference. By the way, I, I existed in a time to where it was very interesting. I learned ministry before really the development, the popular widespread of like projection technology. Like we had this cool thing called the overhead projector and you would have to print out laminates that, you know, like you'd seriously put one in the projector, but you couldn't do more than one at the same time. Because if you tried to do multiples at a catch and then it potentially, these plastic things that you'd put on an overhead could melt. And man, if you melted that in it, then you were definitely getting fired for whatever church you worked. Dylan, do you ever use an overhead projector ever in worship? Did you ever have it? Like you're younger than I am. Okay, so you did it, but you weren't there for the whole production and everything. I mean, I'm telling you, when you brought an overhead projector in New York, you're like, look at this, y'all. Because we had these things called hymnals. Hymnals were books of songs in there, and those songs were like zero to 600. And it was like, even though it was just a book with songs, really it almost was like, these are the approved songs that we can sing. 
And if it's not in the hymnal, then you're a friggin' hippie because you're singing these crazy songs that don't have four-part harmony in it, right? And that's why I love the bridge. I still love that song at the end when you put in the nothing but the blood of Jesus. That was approved. Whatever mess you sang before that was not approved, and we'll talk about that later. But seriously, when I was, uh, Kelly and I, the first church in which we worked for, they were very much, there, was, there were two things on the side of the stage, an organ and a, and a piano, and those were allowed to be played. But one day, the worship leader's going to be gone, the organist was off, and it's like, hey, Steve, I need you to lead worship. I know you play guitar. Can you just go ahead and lead some songs? I'm like, that's great. So Steve preps his song list, does it. I include all hymns, but played on the guitar, Right? And I'm like, this will work itself out. And somebody's moving the little projection thing. It's great. Well, I finish and I'm like, I'm pretty proud of myself. Some people are complimentary. Tuesday, a letter arrives in the mail. And mail Garrett is this thing that sometimes they deliver Monday through Friday. But we live in the city, so, you know. I'm joking because we have a mailman that's part of his church. And he kicks butt, Evan, you're my man. But sometimes the mail comes. And when it does, they get letters like this. And there was a three-page letter, a three Page typed letter, letter criticizing the me leading worship on Sunday, saying that it was the lowest point in the church's hundred years history. And if Steve was smart, he would have kept that letter. But the reality is, is that there, are, this letter, the point that it tried to make was like, look, this is why Jesus intended worship only to have an organ and a piano. So the whole letter was bunk. The senior minister was kind of, he got a giggle out of it. But at the same time, it was interesting, the letter was anonymous. But I thought it would be interesting, it's like, that would have been a good learning lesson to the church to say, hey, this is what it means for us to understand essentials and non-essentials. But he let it slide, and I didn't last long there. Uh, I didn't get fired, which was an achievement in of itself. But worship preferences, the songs we pick and stuff. Like some people come in, they jibe with what we do. If we don't, we're like, hey, sorry about that. There are people, and I could go into this, who believe that instruments are not permitted because instruments are not used in worship in the Bible. And by the way, we've had some of those visit Echo because our tradition includes some of them. It's very funny, they come in and then they see the guitar and they go right back out. And it's just really awkward, hashtag awkward. But that's not an essential here. Finally, political involvement. I don't want to go in depth just to say this, but this is something that we need to say is that there are, you know, politics is something that is meant to be divisive, and that for our church and how it ought to be for every local church should not be a separation for anybody else. You shouldn't be outed because you have certain political beliefs, and if we're doing that, then we're doing it wrong. Too many times we want to tether the way we vote directly to Scripture, but I'm going to tell you this comes down to non-essential issues almost all the time. We want to make them into essential issues because it makes it easier for us to be homogenous, right? To make us all the same. Friends, if we're all the same, then I don't believe there's room for the Holy Spirit to be able to challenge and move us and prove who I am. Last thing that's not on the list, but I really wanted to touch on this, is that the idea that Echo Church has a woman lead pastor is actually something that falls under the beliefs of non-essentials, that people whom I fellowship believe it's absolutely essential, and for Rote, I've said this, you know, to, I've actually had to resign from a couple boards when they found out that Kelly leads our church. So you would think, by the by, that, and you know me, if those of you know me, if you're hearing my voice, you're like, oh, let's just go. Let's have a good fight conversation about it. And you know what I do? I just walk away gently. And I'm telling you, I have studied this topic of many, would love to speak out about it, but your lead pastor says, hey, Steve, uh, shut up, like, 
don't take this outside of it. Because the reality is, one of the blessings of being an urban church is nobody cares about that here. We do have people who sometimes who visit and find out, and you know, that's something that Kelly bears really well, but the idea is that we aren't in the active point of defending why we believe a woman lead pastor can be biblical because we're too busy accomplishing what we need to do as a body of believers, okay? So, and this has happened, but when you're at the family gathering and someone's like, oh, who's your lead pastor? Her name's Kelly, she's awesome. Her husband is, you know, smoking hot, but he doesn't communicate as well as she does. Which is how you should respond, that's an essential. But when that happens, and somebody feels compelled to tell you, well, women pastors aren't biblical, just you could fight with them all day, my advice to you is just let it slide. And really, if that's something you're like, I'm curious about knowing about this, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. But outside this church, that's what Kelly's just like, we don't need to, man, guys, I love a good internet fight sometimes. I only like a good internet fight when I'm just up for it, right? But... Um, we don't need to do that because that's a non-essential. It's a congregational issue. This is what our church has decided. And you know what we're busy about doing? What we need to do as a church, not worrying about this. Is this helpful? Okay. Where's all this derived from? Was that a good enough variation? That's why I didn't clear it with you ahead of time because I talk about you. And if I tell you I'm talking about you, that becomes a thing too. Still smoking hot though. Okay, where does this come from? Caesarea Philippi. And I don't have a Bible, I don't have my notes, which is why it gets bad right here, but in Matthew chapter 16, if you're curious about reading this now or later, it's very curious. Jesus is in the central part of Israel, and to get to Caesarea Philippi, he leads his disciples a few hundred miles north of where they were at the time. Like, if I'm going 100 plus miles for anything, I had to drive for work all through the state of Michigan this week, and I, I really don't believe in purgatory, like we don't believe in it as a church, but if it does exist, I lived through it. Any Michiganders here? If so, I'll, yeah. Well, you're right on the border, Shantae, but yeah, I've lived through, I was like, Shantae's like telling me like, don't go to that coffee shop, they're racist. I'm like, thanks for the advice, this is great, okay. <laughs> Legitimately, that's a text conversation that we had this week. I'm like, that's good, that's helpful. But if you're from Michigan, we really, that's an Ohio joke. We love Michigan. Actually, that's the diversity of essentials, non-essentials. You could be from Michigan and be part of this church, it's great, but you... You have to change your citizenship. Okay. No notes. Why did Jesus take his disciples 200 miles north? And by the way, it's a rise in elevation. It was hard work. He took them to Caesarea Philippi. And that sounds like a very, if you've read the Bible, that sounds like a very biblical place, like Caesarea Philippi. By the way, it was named for Philip, who was a regional tetrarch, and Caesar, right? So it's like, it's a very biblical name. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which, by the way, this is a, the best picture I could find to try to illustrate this, but it's a big rock, and we know that hole right there, um, and by the way, that hole, if you know at Matthew 16, if it's open, the hole, that area was actually called the gates of hell, because they believed that this was an access point to the nether regions, right? So... That place was called the gate of hell. So Jesus takes his Boy Scout troop of disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, stands on a rock. What else took place at Caesarea Philippi, and we know this through archaeological and research of the day, is that it was a very pagan place of worship. And when I say a pagan place of worship, ancient pagan worship, wasn't we get in pews, sing hymns, and then all go to brunch to beat the Baptists out. What it was was very sexual in nature. It was 
procreation to try to harness sexuality to bring blessings on life. So the, the, the things that happened in Caesarea Philippi, which by the way, we know wasn't listened, it was not limited to human and human relationships. Do you, do you, do you see what I mean? Like there were actually like, there was, there was animal sexual harassment that took place here in the name of worship. And you're, you're like, okay, they don't have flannel graph. They didn't teach me that in Sunday school. But ancient writers would know that Caesarea Philippi was not a place where good Jewish boys go to hang out unless they're doing ungood Jewish boy things. And Jesus himself takes them there. The Son of God takes them to the most pagan place in the area. And it's very interesting is that cliff there, that's like the rock. And what does Jesus say? He waits till he gets there. He's like, hey guys, um, who do people say I Who do people say that I am? Who am I? And you know, Bartholomew is like, what is going on with that goat down there? That one didn't land, but I'll, I'll keep trying. And Peter, who's, by the way, his real given name was Simon. Peter says, you're Christ. You are the son of God. That's who you are. And Jesus says, now I will call you Peter, which is the Greek word Petra, which is a great 80s Christian rock band, but also the name for rock. So they were on the rock. So understand this, Peter's name, is derived from this rock, which is the most pagan thing in the world. Now, that's why in Catholicism, some people say Peter's the first pope, right? Because Jesus changed his name. He's the rock, and the papacy is upon which everything is founded. But I would offer that, yes, this is a good understanding text to understand the broader church, but it's not about Peter himself. It's about Peter saying, it's like, you are the rock, this is the rock, and really the foundation of where the church is going to be is in the most God-forsaken places in the world, right? So very often Christians want to be isolationists. We want to separate out. We want to have holy huddles where we keep all the nastiness of the world behind us. But the reality is it's like Jesus says, look, here's the rock. You're the rock. I'm going to start this church on all of this, on, you know, this, in this pagan land and on you as a follower of me. Now, here's the key thing. This is why I believe this, however, is the most important text that leads us to essentials and non-essentials. In, in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus then says to Peter and all the disciples, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing. Think of those as tasks, okay? What does it mean to bind something? When you're buying, you're tying something up, right? To lose something is the antithesis of that when you're letting something free, right? So whatever you capture here, it's good in heaven. Whatever you loose here will be loosed in heaven. Are you tracking with me? This, friends, is the mandate for freedom that Jesus has given the church. This is our pathway toward non-essentials, okay? So what we bind is essential. What we loose is non-essential. Okay? Now, the problem that many of us have this from a religious perspective is that this is very, very messy, right? Because you're like, for some of you, you're like, one of the reasons you like an organized religion is that it tells me what I need to do, the actions I need to live out. It's very black and white, but I'm just telling you, is what Jesus said is like, welcome to the world of gray, y'all. That's my church. And living in the gray can sometimes be fraught with tension, and you know what? I think that's okay because as we've talked previously, that's the mandate that you and I have believers and followers of Jesus. Two terms, 
$3, you know, theological terms, but something is open. Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is all these beliefs we're talking about. It's, it's what we believe is right. Orthodoxy are those essentials. Orthodoxy is how we tether and say, this is how we are going to try to believe. But what is usually not talked about, because churches are very much into belief, but we don't talk about orthopraxy. So again, the Latin of this. Ortho, what is right. Our doxy, what we believe. That our doxos, the, the, the praxy, our practice, how we live this out. And I will give this, this spectrum right here. I'm going to tell you that your life as a follower of Jesus and our life as a church together lives within the spectrum of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We know that there are very right things, that we know that there are very proper things for us to do, and yet we have to live out the middle. Our issue is we're always trying to discover what the line is, and that's why we like to make our non-essentials into essentials, because it makes our life easier. Do you understand this? So if I say don't drink, drink or chew or go with girls who do, you understand it's like, okay, these are the lines. But if we're like, hey, you know what? You can have a drink every now and then. Then that ambiguity in your life, for some of you, you're just like, no, 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 no. Give me a line. And for some of you, though, when you're in this point, you're like, I'm going to deep dive, immerse into this. So we usually isolate or immerse, and what we have to figure out is there's a spectrum of which we can practice freedom. That should be freeing, but for some of you, for some of you more OCD, like that for you is the scariest thing that maybe has been stayed on, said on the stage, right? But the good news about this is that we live this in community together. Do you see what I mean? So we live in the gray collectively trying to figure out what it means to the world. The problem is we've been taught to fear a God because it's like if I step out of line, he's going to hit the smite button. But instead, the Lord Jesus Christ provides us unparalleled freedom to be able to live this out. Church leaders sometimes fear that because embracing it is a really uncharted path, but that's what we're trying to do. And no joke, that's why I talk to Kelly all the time. It's just like she, you know, she's kicking ass at doing that for us as a church. She is leading out for us what it means for us to try to live in the gray. And that's why I believe this church has had some of the best ministry that we performed ever in our two decades of history because we are navigating the gray together. We're not getting it perfect. But if you're at the point where you're like, am I ever going to hit that point when I believe the wrong thing and they're going to kick me out of echo? We haven't figured it out. Right, Susan? It's the conversation that Susan and us have been having for the better part of two decades now. And she is a leader in this church because she has continued to live that out with us. I'm telling you, it's good stuff to describe. I say this, the church has liberty in deciding how to serve the kingdom of God. Okay, <laughs> that's my first point. Kelly's looking at the clock. You're screwing this up. Can I land where this comes through, which I think is important, but I will do this in good time. Okay, how do we ensure that the church practices healthy biblical freedom? Because I'm like, hey, I like the idea that we all do this together. Uh, we would tell you, though, is that as we do this together as a church, the New Testament does outline that there is not hierarchy in the church, but there's protectiveness in the church. That there are people who have been called to stand up and to be able to present themselves in ways to be able to guide the congregation. When you read the New Testament, so much of it is about the apostles, right? Jesus' group of young people that he leads through as they mature into adulthood, they're the ones who are going out and leading the churches. I would tell you that in addition to apostles, we see a couple other roles. I can go into this because these are long studies. Elders, evangelists, sometimes harder to nail down when an elder and evangelist in some different settings. The one thing I can tell you is, though, what's very interesting is that apostles were not a permanent role, and actually that role no longer exists 
In the New Testament, apostles were people who lived with Jesus, who were able to um, be with him from beginning of ministry to crucifixion, resurrection, and it was almost a transient role to be able to give guidance to the church for the next thousands of years, okay? So I will tell you, whenever I, I will meet a lot of pastors and sometimes say, hey, I'm Apostle Paul, or, you know, like not the Apostle Paul, but they're like, look, I'm, I'm an apostle, and I'm just like, how, who? It just doesn't subscribe anymore. By the way, one of the reasons we like apostles and the idea of these hierarchical things, it's like, oh, they're in charge, and then we just are all the minions who don't have to think. Really, the way that we enact freedom as a church is collectively through people who are called as leaders. Now, what's interesting is that we at Echo, as much as we have, we're down to two elders. We've had anywhere from five, six elders to now two elders here at time. Like, it's always this vacillation. But more so about that, it's not that we have to have elders to be a legitimate church. You just need to have biblically called leaders who are shepherds who are holding that out. In a staff construct, we have Dylan and Shante and Kelly who serve in that role, who are shepherds for our congregation. The base level, though, by the way, in all biblical leadership, is just plurality. Plurality. There can't be one. So whenever I, I'll meet sometimes, and it's like, hey, I'm the pastor, right? I'm the pastor. You know, pastor, by the way, the etymology from parson, you know, like the, the idea of the shepherding thing. In the old days, it, like parson is person. They were the person. They were the only educated person among the masses. But in today, we lean into what the text says, what the Bible teaches, is that it is always a group of people coming into decision making. Why do we have that as groups? Because we know that groups of leaders, yes, maybe you'll have one wayward leader, but typically, they don't, don't go astray, right? There's always somebody to bring it back into it. We just pop up all the three traits. I, I, I teach in this, but I want to get this. Traits of a good leader, and this is just Steveism, so this is not fully biblical. That they're present, that they're attentive, that they're decisive. Like, these are the things that have to happen, y'all. But these are good traits. And I'm going to tell you, the thing I love about this church right now is he's raising leaders. One of the reasons that we've, and we continue to do this, we're trying to find, you know, some of you don't have a title and you're a leader in this church, right? Part of the challenges that we have in raising leaders is that there's so many good leaders with young families. And God bless you all for having the young families, man. I look at that and I'm like, I have no idea how the hell you guys make it through day to week, right? And what we don't want to do, and I've seen this before, by the way, is sometimes we take people who are in that stage of life and we're like, oh, and you be an elder. Like we just throw responsibility because it's like, this will help everybody, and sometimes by putting that on those young people with families and stuff, it becomes a burden that makes faith impassable, church there. So we have, this is something that's changed in my life as in my late 40s right now. I'm very much like, let's slow it down on the leadership aspect. God's calling people he's raising. Just because you don't have a title here does not mean that you aren't in a space where you can lead. And I could go person by person, people in this room and not here today, who are those types of leaders, and they embody these aspects. But it's a very serious call. This is a serious thing about this, and this is where I'm, I am landing this plane. James 3.1 is the verse that very often will keep me up at night. And it's the verse for any of us who want to be part of the church, and maybe you're like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a leader in the church. Just read James 3.1 every day for a year and see how that lands on you. Because James 3.1 is not many of you should become teachers. And I would tell you that when he's talking about teachers, he's talking about church leaders here, right? Not many of you should become that because you will be judged more strictly. 
And one of the things that I've chosen in my life as a church leader to bear out for the past 25 plus years is that when I stand here and say things, that those words have resonance. And I'm always shocked when people who are like, hey, Steve, something that you preached back in 2004 really stuck with me. And I'm like, I don't remember what I did last week. But some people latch onto things that I said a couple decades ago. And the reason that is, is because we listen and we lean in on spiritual leaders, right? So somebody who is eager to try to take that, the thing that I have to say is that as I live out my life, I ain't perfect, and you guys know this, but I'm making sure that I better be right with God because at some point, if I believe all this to be true and I'm standing before the throne of God someday, he's gonna be like, hey, how'd you do? How'd you shepherd? Were you doing it for prestige? Were you doing it to have power? Were you doing it in the ways that resonate with the lifestyle of my son Jesus? So church has leaders, but they don't exist to confine your freedom, right? What we want to do, however, is to make sure we're living with essential so that we can become the community that we need to be. So we do have leaders in this church. And if you're not a leader, in some ways we need your leadership. We don't have to throw a title on it. Just we in the community have to pursue this better. Because what the church exists for is not to bind our freedom, but it's to release us to do amazing things. And the dream that we had 18 years ago to come from Mason, Ohio, down to Walnut Hills to be able to start a church and how so many people over the years have joined in the same vision was, let's go to a place that at the time was viewed as Caesarea Philippi and let's, let's plant a community there. Maybe my last thing, Walnut Hills is so far less Caesarea Philippi than it was years ago, like probably ideologically it is. There's still very few people of faith in these communities, right? Some are moving in and some are trying to, but at the same time, it's still a place to where what we teach and preach and live out is antithetical to, you know, a more enlightened worldview. But even though aspects of our neighborhood is changing, we continue to live every, every day believing that Jesus has called us to build the church on the rock in the midst of everything. We're not separating from the world. We're trying to spread his love to the world because we believe that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Hey, Kelly, will you come forward right now because I love the conclusion of what this is, is that we talk about freedom in Christ and the way that we do this. And by the way, something that we do every week here, this isn't part of legalism. This is not essential that people take communion, but we do it because we believe that as the church, we're called to be that, right? We're called to be the church to focus on Christ, and to live this out together. Yeah, when Jesus had his last supper and he said, just, just keep remembering me with a meal. He didn't say how often, and different churches do it differently, but it's kind of nice. I have a short attention span. I'm a little bit more dory some days that it's just nice to have um, time to sit here and to remember the essential of Jesus dying and raising again, that his death and his resurrection both matter, and to keep that as a priority in our lives. And so it's just a moment of time to just reflect on that. And so we have a small meal. We do, we do bread. We do juice. And we just try to have this, these symbols in our week 
to remember this essential of our faith. So we're going to have friends come forward and serve for us, but let's pray together. God, thank you for inviting us to be your church, to represent you in the world, to live together, to live like Jesus and, and strive to show his love, his grace in this world. And we won't be perfect at it, but we ask that you would guide us with your wisdom Give us the strength to try each day and to lean on one another and to go out here together as a body of believers, as a family of God, into your world with who you are represented in our lives. We thank you for living, for dying, and for raising again for us, Jesus. And we remember that now. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.